Sinners, week number nine of your story from Mark chapter three. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an evil spirit. Excuse me. So let's talk about that passage, all right? Because it's one that, that, that's tough and that, that I think has terrified believers for about 2,000 years. We come in with the assumption that, that all sins are forgiven. And then Jesus gives this, this warning about this thing called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and saying it's an eternal sin which, which can't be forgiven. And, and it's a passage that's been very instrumental in my own faith journey in all the wrong ways. Um, but thanks be to God how we can take struggles and, and hard times of your life and bring good out of them, right? And maybe you're here today and maybe you've, you've never seen that passage before. And you're going, wait, wait, what, what is that about? And, and it fills you with a certain sense of uncertainty maybe or, or fear. And maybe you have seen it before and have wrestled with it. And, and, and there's a deep place within your heart that you don't often talk about or show that asks questions like, what is that? Because I want to make sure I don't do it. And have I done it? And maybe I did it. And what if I have done it? Am I still forgiven? And, and maybe there's just a sense of, 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 of dread or foreboding attached with it here today. But what we're going to be looking at in this, um, as, as we cap off these, these, these passages looking at faith, is what today's story is really about. And what this passage is really about is the extreme lengths that people will go to in order to reject Jesus. And so the story that we just heard, it, it pops up in three places, all right? Now, it comes up in, in Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 12, and Mark chapter 3. Each brings its own flavor to the story, but we're going to track with Mark 3 here today. And just like we've been doing, I want to invite you to maybe just kind of pull one out and, and track the story along with me and to be, to be asking questions and thinking about it and, and, and anticipating where things might be going and, and let just God speak to you through this, this morning. Now, the way to dismiss anything today is to label it offensive. Okay. Label something as offensive and suddenly you have completely sidelined it 
from having to be dealt with in any kind of public discussion or in the public square or oftentimes even personally. Because in today's culture, there is nothing more feared and nothing worse than being called offensive, right? Now, have you noticed this? Label it offensive and suddenly it's like it settles the matter. It doesn't have to be dealt with anymore because it's simply offensive. Oh, good. We don't have to look at that. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter why someone is saying it. It doesn't matter if what is being discussed merits consideration. You don't want to deal with it just that that's offensive. And suddenly you can put it over there. Have you noticed this? I mean, have you done this? I think all of us have done this at some point. Is it, haven't you found that labeling something is an easy way of not having to take it quite as seriously? Because if you label it, you classify it, you can make assumptions about it, and you don't really have to listen so closely anymore because you can jump to conclusions already made. This, this game of labeling is what today's passage is all about. And the motivation behind it that exists so often with, with us here today is exactly what's going on with Jesus in this story. Okay, now to this point, Mark has been building something. He has been building a track record or a case that is undeniable in clear and no uncertain terms of who Jesus is and what he came to do. I mean, it starts out with this guy called John the Baptist, and he's wildly popular. I mean, people are flocking to him. People are saying, this is a spokesman of God. He comes in the Lord. And John will say, wait, 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 hold on. This one coming after me, Jesus, man, he is, he is so powerful. He is so much more powerful than I. I am not even worthy to tie his shoes. And we see Jesus then get coronated by God. Heaven rips open and a dove comes down. And this voice says, you are my son. I am your father. With you, I am well pleased. And we see Jesus then go out into the wilderness and he goes 40 rounds head to head with the devil. And he comes out on top and Satan departs from him. And the story in Mark goes on in these early chapters where we see him driving out demons like left and right. He has power and authority over them. And it's undeniable to everyone around. He's, he goes up to this paralyzed guy and, and, and he just says, walk. And he gets up and he walks and he's forgiving sins and he's healing diseases. And what Mark is doing up to this point is building a case to show that the evidence is clear. There is something undeniable and unmistakably good happening in Jesus. And this is where our story starts. If you're looking, it starts at Mark three and it starts right at verse 20. And it says that Jesus again, finds himself with these crowds, right? It's been crowds in Jesus for the first three chapters so far. And it says he's in the house and you know, whose house? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's Peter's house. Maybe it's Jesus house. Do you ever think of Jesus as owning a house? We don't, right? Because we know Jesus owned a condo. But Jesus could have very well owned a house. It might be his house. And the crowds want so much of a piece of him that they're swarmed in so much that it says what? He can't even get something to eat. 
He is so crowded in that he can't even eat. Now, I don't know about you, but I like my personal space. And if I'm trying to find a little sanctuary in my house and there are so many people crowding around me that I can't even reach the fridge, I'm ticked. All right? This is kind of what's going on here. Now, something very interesting happens. Jesus' family hears about this. And maybe Jesus' family lived at the house too. Because in the old days, unlike today, people actually lived with their parents for generation after generation. Who here is glad they were born in the 21st century? Yeah, amen, right? But back in the old days, families would live in complexes. Families across generational lines would live together. Maybe they're trying to come home too. And they're like, parents, you ever come home? And it's like, oh, my teenager has a lot of people in my house, right? Maybe it's something like that. Because look at what they say. They go to take charge of him. Isn't that Jesus feeding those people in our house? They go to take charge of him. For they said what? Read it. His own family thought he was nuts. Now, just like we don't like often think of Jesus as owning a house, many of us probably don't think of Jesus as having a family. You know, we'll give him Mary, right? And we know he had a stepdad named Joseph who gets off the scene as soon as Christmas is over. Um, but, you know, he had brothers and sisters too. And the Bible's clear about that. Jesus had a family. I mean, imagine what it would be like to know Jesus that intimately as your older brother. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's why they thought he was out of his mind because they know what it was like living with a guy. You, you know, I mean, older brother, is it like, oh, shoot, he says he's the son of God. Is like having the eternal noogie from my big brother in heaven like that. And I got nothing. Who knows? But they go, he is out of his mind. And it says they go to take charge of him. Now, the Greek underlying this take charge thing here, right? It is the exact same word as when the guards come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before Good Friday. This is not just coming up to Jesus going, oh, now, Jesus, come on. It's gotten out of hand. They are coming to physically force him, to physically take hold of him and do whatever they think they need to do about him because they just don't get it. And that raises an interesting question. Because if those who are closest to you don't get it, how much more those who don't like you to begin with? Because as much as you fight with your family, they'll at least cut you a break sometimes, right? Well, maybe. <laughs> but those who don't like you, there's no familial bond. There's, there's no intimate or emotional connection. So if your family is saying you're out of your mind, how much more the opportunity for those who want to take you down already? And so it says that these scribes come, these religious leaders, these people that do nothing but copy the Bible day and night and read it and analyze it and sift it and comment on it. Imagine how well you would know the Bible if you wrote it 400 times. Okay? That's what these kinds of guys are like. And they come... And what Jesus is doing is undeniable. I mean, the evidence is there. They can't say, ah, oh, he didn't really heal that guy because there's healed guy walking around. They can't really say he didn't cast a demon out because 
you know, let's face it. The person was frothing on the ground at the mouth. It spoke in some like deep demonic voice. Jesus said, get out and everything is cool again. Stuff like that, you just can't deny. But the problem is they don't like Jesus. And so what do you do with someone that you don't like, but whom you can't get around? You label him. Because if you label him, you sideline him. If you label him, you cast him in a certain perception so that now when I am staring face to face with the evidence of who he is, I can rationalize him away by virtue of the label and sleep at night and justify it to myself. If I can label him, I can spin the crowds to start thinking about him differently and to start seeing him in a new light because if I think about him in these terms, I don't have to take the evidence of what he is saying and what he is doing quite so seriously. Have you ever done this? Honestly, have you ever seen it done? Cultural, political, public square? There is a biblical word for this. It's called Pharisee. And let's face it, we're all guilty of being Pharisees like this from time to time. How much have we jumped up on a label for someone who takes a position that we don't like so we don't have to take what he's saying or she's saying quite as seriously? That's what's happening right here with Jesus. And so this is how they spin it. You know what? We can't deny that he's casting out demons. And we can't deny that this is a good thing, right? So what can we do? Let's spin the sucker. He is possessed by Beelzebub. That must be it. Let's label him by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Yeah, he's doing good, but you know what? It's, it, it's all undercover. It's all a big ruse. It's all a subversive trick. Man, this guy's on the devil's side and he's doing it to trick us into believing him that, yeah, that must be it. And man, I don't want to follow the devil. Do you? You see how this works? By Beelzebub, the, the Lord of the flies or the Lord of the dung heap is what it means. That's who Jesus is. And by the prince of demons, he is driving him out. Now, what's cool in the story is that Jesus does not respond back in kind. You know, the best way today, if someone labels you one way, you've got to label them another way and you get into the war of words. But Jesus doesn't do that. He does something else instead. He shows them the flaw in their thinking. He just points out how this doesn't make sense. And he says something basically like this. Think about it, guys. If a family spends its time fighting among each other, if a family ultimately wants two separate things and is pulling at each other, at the fiber of each other, if they are divided against themselves, right? Do you know what that's called? Divorce court, right? A government. If a government is going back and forth, back and forth, and is pulling at each other with different agendas and different motivations and is not united, do you know what happens? Government shutdown, right? 
If a church is divided and they ultimately are pursuing different visions and looking for different things, do you know what that's called? A church split. Or at least you hope it results in that at some point. Because nothing can undermine itself and hope to stand. I mean, look at life. Doesn't life not demonstrate this? And so why would it be any different than the devil? Why on earth, in what sense would it make for the devil to undermine the devil? Because if the devil is undermining the devil, the devil can't stand. It's like Jesus is saying, even if you think I'm of the devil, you still have to admit that what I'm doing is good. And your whole argument goes to pot. And then he tells him a parable. He says, no one can come in, right? No one can overpower a strong guy, a strong man. No one can break into his house and rob him unless he can overpower him, right? Which means he has to be stronger. It's like Jesus is saying, look at the stuff that I'm doing. You know, the devil has this world in its grip. They are his possessions and the devil is strong. Would you agree? And he keeps people in bondage to things like, like disease. He keeps them infirm. He keeps them paralyzed and deaf and sick and broken. He punishes them and, and torments them with, with the bondage of the things like this of this world. And what has Jesus been doing? He's been plundering the guy. He's been robbing them. He's been taking these paralyzed people and making them walk. He's been taking these demon-possessed people and casting them out. It's like a stronger one has come. And the kingdom of God is advancing. And what is occurring is undeniable. The devil's day is done. What do you do with that if you do not like the person who represents the message? Because this is what the Pharisees faced. How do we deny what is so clear before all of our eyes? You label him and you reject him despite everything you know to be true. And it's where Jesus says something very interesting and something that in many ways has, has plagued people for ages. Now, now I'm going to read it to you. And, and, and as I say this, I want you to tell me what sticks in your mind. Okay? Jesus says this, all the sins and all the blasphemies of men will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, what part of that phrase that I just said strikes you? Shout it out. Hmm? Okay, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Are you, are you, are you kind of with Judy on this? All right, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what we get fixated on. Do I think the detriment of what Jesus said? Why do we skip over this? Is that not just as radical? Is that not more radical? Or has familiarity with the grace and forgiveness of Christ made it completely unfamiliar to our eyes 
and their ears. And think about this, guys. He says all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. How many of them? Some of them? All of them. Is that something you take for granted? Or can you look at that with fresh eyes when you come in mired with guilt and mired with questions and mired with wondering, can I be forgiven because it feels so bad? And trust that what Jesus says is actually true, that all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. In fact, I want to play a game with you today, okay? I want to play Name That Sin. Okay, here's what you need to do. You need to come up with a sin, and then I'll tell you if it's forgiven. Okay? Now, there are bonus points this morning if the sin is particularly heinous or creative. Okay? There are extra bonus points involved if the sin is one that your spouse is currently engaged in who is with you here today. Okay? Do you see how that works? All right? So, so give me a sin. Shout it out. Adultery. Yeah, it's forgiven. Murder? Yeah, that's forgiven. Hmm? Lying? Yeah, lying's forgiven. Stealing? Yeah, stealing's forgiven. Gossiping? Yeah, yeah, you guys were saying that about each other, weren't you, right? Yeah, you know what? It's forgiven. What, what else? Blasphemy of the Spirit. Now, we got that exception hanging there, and, 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 and you're being a real dork right now, man, because you knew that was the... Yeah, we're going to get to that one. No, that one's not forgiven, all right? Give me another one. You guys are so boring in your sin lives. Cannibalism. There we go. Now we're getting interesting. Yes. It's, it's a real problem in our house. Yes, it is forgiven. We would love to have any of you over for dinner this week. All of them. All of them. All of them. I don't care how bad they are. I don't care who you've hurt. I don't care how bad you still feel about them. I don't care that you can't forgive yourself or someone else can't forgive you. If Jesus' words are true, he says that all of the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. And you know why? Because sin is strong and the devil is strong who brings them into, to the forefront of our lives. But the blood of Jesus is stronger. And the stronger man is here. Stronger than even sin. And he has come to plunder the house of the guilt-ridden. Are you with me? And then within it, he gives a warning, except for one, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is the only thing that the Bible seems to say will not be forgiven, which starts to raise all kinds of questions, I think, in our mind. What is this? Because I don't want to do it. Now, first off, let's kind of derail one line of thinking that this goes. We hear people use God's name in vain all the time. We hear people curse God all the time, right? You know, God's name in a swear word. Does this mean that I can say blank Jesus Christ or, you know, God blank or something like that, and that's forgiven? But if I was to put the Holy Spirit's name in there instead, that wouldn't be? 
Okay, when you say it out loud, doesn't that just sound a little goofy? A little arbitrary? It seems to me that that's not what it's getting at. It's a broader connotation and a broader idea of what blasphemy is and the Holy Spirit does. Because blasphemy isn't just kind of like hitting your, your, your hand with a hammer and then like saying some expletive with God's name. Yeah, it is, but blasphemy is something deeper than that. Blasphemy is rejection. It's spitting in the face of God. It's taking something and completely profaning it. It's saying, you know what? I see it, but I want nothing to do with it. Forget it. I hate it. And swear, you get the idea, right? Right? Cursing it off. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? None of us would be here right now if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. There's people in this world that will say, you know, the, the human heart is a blank slate. It's neither good nor bad, and it just gets written on by life. There's other people that would say the human heart is inherently good, and it gets corrupted over time. The Bible seems to say that the human heart is something that is fundamentally corrupted at birth. From the time my mother conceived me, I was sinful, the psalmist will say. That sin is not just what we do, that sin is a corruption within us. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we're sin, because we sin. Are you with me? And so without the power of the Holy Spirit, the great Christian traditions will say it is impossible for anyone to come to faith in Christ because it's God's Spirit that assaults us. It is the stronger man in the room that seeks to grab hold of us and take us and melt our heart and persuade us and stir within us to bring an inclination towards God. And it's like Jesus is saying, it's not taking the Holy Spirit's name and just putting a swear word with it, which is what I thought it was for years. It's something deeper than that. It's looking at the clear and certain work of God in your life. The clear and certain evidence of who God is and what he has come to do. And because you don't like the implications of what it means, rejecting it, dismissing it, labeling it, so that it doesn't keep you awake at night anymore. It's like cutting off the grace pipeline. Saying, Holy Spirit, I want nothing to do with you. Out of my life. It's kind of like people who have conspiracy theories. You ever listen to them, get into them yourself? Have you ever had a a conversation with someone who had a conspiracy theory? It doesn't matter what you say or what the evidence shows. Everything gets translated to fit the theory. I've met people like this with God. Or better put, people like this who want to oppose God. I know one guy very close to me who prayed for for years. And every now and then there would be like this slight window that would open. And it was like God's word was taking hold in his life. And I was starting to see, like, the scales fall from the eyes only to watch it be reprogrammed before my eyes in seven seconds to fit his prevailing theory that he wanted to believe. It's like the scribes are sitting there going, I see what Jesus is doing, but you know what? I don't want to reject, I don't want to believe in him. 
So I will take whatever he's doing, no matter how clear it is, and reprogram it to fit what I want to believe. This is what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is all about. It's rejecting the one who is trying to save you. It's kind of like a surgeon who's able to give you the life-changing operation that you need. He's able to save you from certain death. By this, this operation he can bring to you. But you've got convinced in your mind that he's actually a sadistic serial killer. And you know, no matter how many successful operations he's done, no matter how many people have been saved by his hand, that when he gets me on the table, that's the end of me. And the very belief or rejection of truth will keep you from getting the life-saving operation that you need. This is what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is about and what Jesus warns us against. All your sins will be forgiven because I have come to die for this world and to save this world from sin. But that salvation comes by faith. And faith is accepting that operation that I have come to bring. And if you reject that, label it, sideline it, you end up dismissing and throwing away the very salvation I've come to bring. Does that make sense? It means that there's no neutrality with Jesus. It's not in Mark. It's either, either Matthew or Luke, maybe both. Jesus will say this, whoever is not for me is against me. He doesn't say there's some for me, there's some against me, and there's some still making up their mind. Whoever is not for me is against me, he'll say. That when you come face to face with Jesus, there's only two choices to make. To accept that what he says is true and call upon him for salvation or to reject him. To reject him by sidelining him to reject him by labeling him, to reject him by dismissing him, to reject him by saying, it's out of his mind. Each of us in this room are called to a choice when we come face to face with the words of Jesus. To take the evidence before us of who he is and what he has done and what he continues to do or to dismiss it. To call Jesus a great moral teacher or an interesting historical figure is to label him, to sideline him so that we don't really have to deal with what his message is about. At least from a Mark 3 perspective, there's only really three choices on the table. We can say you're the son of God, which is the message Mark is trying to bring. We could say, you're nuts, you're out of your mind. You're crazy, man. Or like Pharisee, 
You're a liar. You're the spawn of hell itself, a devil, a demon, evil. The question is, when you see Jesus, what do you think of the three he happens to be? And it's this question and all of its implications that this passage in Mark 3 is about that leads the way into Mark 4 that we looked at last week with the story of the parables and what Jesus does with them and what they came to do and the simple proverbial question that we shared back then that I'll bring to you again today. What kind of dirt are you? Guys, I want to invite you to pray with me. Um, if, if you'd rise, please. We're going to come into a time of worship, and, and I do encourage you to ask the question, what kind of dirt am I today? Jesus, what do I say about you? Lord, liar, or lunatic? What do I do with what you've done before my eyes? Am I accepting it? Am I believing it? Or am I sidelining it? Ignoring it? Denying it or rejecting it? Wherever you come from today, know that the Lord of heaven says this, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. So I just encourage you, bring those sins or whatever they might be today to him. And trust that he's powerful to forgive.